As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We come to you today with a lot of humility. John Farrell, Lisa Bramwitz, and I know that oil is the toughest commodity to call. There's all sorts of academic research that shows that. Yesterday, we had on Edward Morse of Citigroup with a huge political economic standpoint on hydrocarbons. And today, as acute, Francisco Blanche joins us, head of global commodities and derivatives research at Bank of America. Francisco, you were the first one out that I knew to model $100 a barrel. You made global headlines with it. You were right. Up we went, and then down we can, came on, I'm going to say, a dearth of demand. Chris Verone was just on, the technical analyst, and says the spot market for oil is behaving differently than the futures market for oil. Explain in Greek what that means. Well, uh, you want me to use... Uh uh, Vegas and uh, and uh, deltas in, in in the process Tom maybe not right let me just say it in plain English uh, we have um, uh, essentially a very low uh, speculative interest uh, essentially all the all the uh, uh, macro players have been selling oil on the back of uh, on the back of recession fears uh, some of the comments that you were just making um, before uh, we went on the oil segment uh, also we've seen a, a dearth of liquidity liquidity is falling very quickly in the forward markets and um and then i think i think beyond that uh, the the physical market's been actually relatively uh, uh more supported although that's changing a bit too because uh, it, it turns out that the russian supply disruption we were all expecting on the back of the eu sanctions hasn't really uh, right. come through as expected and, and and maybe we won't be losing as much russian oil after all Long ago and far away, uh, Lisa Abramowitz put two kids through school speculating on oil when it went down under zero. There was that huge shock of 18 months ago, two years ago. We kid her that she had two barrels of oil in her living room on delivery. Mm -hmm. Are we going to get the same spring here? Did we have a possibility of seeing 70 West Texas Intermediate become 95 or 100 West Texas Intermediate in a cup of coffee? Um, I, I'm afraid so. I think we have a very springy, I think you use a great word there, uh, springy uh, oil market um, because uh, inventories remain quite low, uh, spare capacity is tight. And if, if you look at, at the three key drivers of oil prices heading into 2023, they're clearly, uh, in my view, uh, whatever happens to OPEC plus Russia, uh, whatever happens to 
China reopening, and the third one being the Fed pivot. Um, and and the way I think about each one of those is. Um, if you look at our 2023 numbers, all the demand growth that we forecast for next year is coming from emerging markets, with China being 50% of that and India being about 20%. So uh, we need emerging markets to come back strong. And uh, it's still a little early, it's still a little unclear uh, how China is going to make a comeback. Um, and, and it may be a different comeback than the one that we saw in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, particularly if, if the reopening is one of fits and starts, um, partly because I think the Chinese population is, is, has not really been much exposed to COVID. We, we talk about the post-COVID world in, in, in Europe and the U.S., but really China hasn't had COVID uh, broadly disseminated yet to the extent that we've seen it uh, in in most other countries in the world. And so that's number one. Number two is really uh, Russia OPEC. Uh, how does that play out? How much oil do we lose from Russia? And how much oil does OPEC plus actually take out of the market? And then the third one really being the OPEC, uh, the uh, Fed tightening uh, uh, policy uh, and which at the moment we have OECD economies essentially growing zero next year. But of course, if the Fed, uh, Fed if uh, US Fed fund rates go to 6%, 7%, that could become negative pretty quickly here. And that's another big uncertainty. And part of the reason oil prices have been falling uh, in recent days. So how much do you think that they could rise? I know that you have a target of perhaps $100 for WTI and $94 for Brent. How do we get there, given all of what you talk about, given that we already right. are seeing some fits and starts with respect to a China reopening and it hasn't really caused the price to go up that much um well so so um again i think i think the the macro picture uh, is pretty gloomy here um and and that's part of the reason prices have come down but uh but i think it's a bit of a different environment to to prior uh pullbacks in oil prices uh first uh we think there is a, there's a put uh that will be triggered i mean opec just had their meeting uh, on sunday decided to roll over the cuts um but uh, remember, the cuts, announced cuts were 2 million barrels a day. Nobody expected OPEC to implement a 2 million barrel a day cut. Uh, they could actually go and do that. They could actually implement a deeper cut. Um, and also, we're going to see WTI uh, um, prices uh, entering the range at which the U.S. government uh, will start filling or refilling, rather, the strategic uh, petroleum reserve. Uh, I remember that number that was put out by the White House was uh, $72 a barrel on WTI. Yeah. So we're getting close to the point where, where we might see uh, those triggers providing support to prices here. So it's a bit of a different to the environment to the to the 2020 world where, where prices just cratered Francisco, on the back of a collapse in demand. Can you elaborate on that? Because this has been one of the big question marks. If the U.S. has said $72 a barrel was the time they'd start buying, and one of the big drivers of the decline in oil prices has been the, uh, the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, how much is that going to cause prices to rise? Are we almost there yet where this administration ought to start buying based on what they've said and that will actually drive prices much higher, perhaps, in the short term? Well, um, again, uh, I'm just going by why what the White House uh, communique was uh, a couple months ago. They, they are um, they're saying they're going to be buying oil as, as soon as we get below the 72-hour threshold. And the balance could change uh, pretty dramatically here. We could see an extra uh, half a million barrels a day of demand uh, from uh, from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, remember that you need to probably put in 150 to 200 million barrels back in store. That's, uh, uh, again, that, that, that takes a whole year of buying half a million barrels a day. Uh, right. I mean, that's simple math there. Right. So um, 
So you could see a pretty meaningful swing in, in balances in that regard. Uh, you could also see uh, heading into 2023, uh, China reopening, picking up momentum. Um, even even if the first two, three, four months could be a little uh, patchy. And and then, of course, uh, I think the sanctions on, on Russian petroleum products, which kick in on February 5, are certainly a much bigger deal than the sanctions on uh, Russian crude, which have turned out to be uh, a, a lot to do about nothing, really. What do you make? Uh, you mentioned the Xi Jinping meeting in Saudi Arabia. Well, how does that affect the dynamic of the oil picture, just given the sense that there seems to be an ongoing and public display of increased closeness there? Well, I, I think that's uh, only a, a natural development of, of uh, uh, the bilateral trade relationship between Saudi Arabia and China, which has changed dramatically since uh, the advent of U.S. shale. Remember, the U.S. is now a net exporter of energy. Uh, we've argued the U.S. was going to be energy independent for the last 10 years, but now we're arguing the U.S. is going to be energy dominant. So in some ways, the U.S. Uh, is a competitor to Saudi Arabia in the energy space. Um, and I think, um, I think uh, in, in that regard, uh, the the uh, trade with uh, between Riyadh and Beijing has really picked up uh, pretty yeah. dramatically. So, so that 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 I think is just a natural change of, of commercial uh, relationships. Maria from Brussels emails in and well, says, "Can Francisco make the kick from 12 yards out? He's he in Madrid. He probably He's, could. He probably had a tough day he, yesterday. He probably could. That was just brutal yesterday. Yeah, that was some of the worst penalties. Francisco's in Madrid, and you know, he's, I'm sure the, the the city must be glooming. Francisco, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, it's not, it wasn't a happy. Uh, it wasn't a happy day yesterday. I have to say, um, you know, the 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 team just kept passing the ball without really uh, the Spanish team without really scoring. So uh, it was a little disappointing. Um, and yeah, mood's a little gloomy here. You can see the background. Uh, the sun hasn't come out yet. Uh, not come out for a couple more days. Does Moynihan know you're in Madrid? I mean, he's talking about expense control, Francisco. How did this hey, happen? You're causing trouble now. I'm causing I trouble. I mean, this is great. It's like Pharaoh and Cutter. You just, know? Just run Francisco. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to try. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, look, I mean, we, we have an office here. We have about... There we uh, go. <laughs> we, have, we, we have an office. It, 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 it was an empty office when I got here, uh, the one I got. So uh, I don't think it's... Uh, I'm, I'm actually yeah. beefing up expenses here, right? right quite there the office, we go. Thank you. Francisco, wonderful, sir. Thank you very much. Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It is a, a jumble. Some would say almost inchoate here, what we're talking about here, all the backs and forth. Someone that needs to distill this is with Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. Brent Schutte joins us now, their chief investment officer. Brent, did you take your outlook for 2023 from 55 pages down to 12? I mean, are you, are you going short and sweet here, or are you right in war and peace here on what we're going to see next year? Right. I think we're more on the short and sweet type and trying to be understandable and, and make sense. And, and to me, I, I think, you know, we're switching from right now inflation fears to recession fears. I hear the word recession quite a bit, and this is what we thought would happen. So if you think about it, inflation fears drove us lower till October 12th. That was the day before core CPI topped. And so I think what you're seeing now is the commentary that the Fed has done too much. You're seeing it in the bond market. The bond market is telling you that inflation is a thing of the past and that the Fed has done too much. And that's what I think likely drives trading for the next few months, where you see these recession fears come out. Once we see that inflation does not survive a recession uh, and that the Fed will pause when they actually see jobs being lost, then I think you can move higher in in a more sustained pace. If we agree... That inflation coming down is what's called a highly stochastic. It's pointy, folks. It goes up, up, doom and gloom, and then it comes down rapidly as it did twice after 1947 and other times as well. How does the allocation or outlook of your investment recommendations change if inflation only comes down to 4% and not to the proverbial 2%? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what most people are saying right now, largely because the New York Fed UIG underlying inflation gauge shows 4% inflation as being kind of the more persistent part of it. And so, I, you know, I, I just don't think that we stay at 4%. I think it does pull back. I don't think we're going below 2 I don't think we're going back to the last decade that we had where we persistently worried about deflation. Um, that, to me, was not, you know, inflation wasn't a relic of the past. That was how we were positioned then. But we are certainly positioned more for it coming down uh, in the next uh, few quarters. Uh, for example, we, we actually upped our allocation or increased our duration towards fixed income in the middle of October because the Barclays aggregate was yielding 5% versus 175 at the start of the year. Bonds now provide real value. Uh, They provide a hedge against downturns in equities caused by recession. Uh, And that's where we've kind of focused on the bond side. On the equity side, we're still on things that are cheaper. Um, That has been what has worked this year. That has been what I think will continue to work next year. And so we own the S&P 600. It trades at 13 times next year's earnings that have already been marked down by uh, 14, 15%. Mark them down 10 more percent or 10 more. Uh, We still are at 15 times. Uh, and so on things like that, and I dare say international developed is becoming more attractive because I think the dollar will fall next year. So, Brent, do I hear 60-40 going into 2023? Is that what I hear? 60-40 was never dead. It's not dead. It needed commodities in it. We had those. Uh, and now I think it's actually going to be a much better place going forward. I mean, uh, equities have done the heavy listing, lifting for the last 10 years. Now bonds offer some value. And so certainly they will be a, a way that holds up the 60-40 as we push forward. Uh, into 2023. Lisa, that's a big change, isn't it? Coming into 22. Do you remember that? 60-40 is dead. Yeah. It's over. And 60-40, let's be clear, this year. <laughs> Brutal. It was devastated. Brutal. And how much do people buy that 60-40 is back, especially after the brutality that we just saw? Well, Brent, that's the question. How perceptive are other people about the thing that you see? How receptive are they towards what you're saying? Well, 
I, I always like to hope to be a, a little bit contrarian in nature because I found that's usually the right place to be. So, you know, I, I do think people are worried just because the 60-40 hasn't worked uh, and that narrative has been that it's dead. I think most people think of the 60-40, unfortunately, as just large cap growth and, and investment grade bonds. I think you need to have things like commodities in there, something that we've owned because we didn't think inflation was dead. Um, something like small cap, something like international stocks, which is no one wants to own those just because they haven't done well. But if I look back at economic cycles post-1980, Every single economic cycle had different leadership. The S&P and EFA alternated. I'm not suggesting that it has to be, but I think as you push forward, you're in a different type of environment where inflation will be above 2%, where there will be different worries, where there will be shortages on different sides of the economy. And I think that's going to drive us forward. And I think 60-40, if you look historically, um, going back to 1926, uh, we've only had four years where the bond market was negative when the stock market was negative. Brent, you and mentioned- those were all dictated by high inflation, which I don't think we're going to have next year. Brent, you mentioned commodities. And let's end there because we've been talking about the divergence between energy stocks and other commodity equities that are doing very well. And then you're looking at a crude price that's the lowest going back to December of 2021. What gives there? Can you have conviction to continue buying energy equities in the face of prices that are dropping in the crude space? There will still be companies that make money within the crude space. I think you just need to focus on picking the right ones. Certainly, um, the easier money has been made in energy. Um, that's been the sector that has done well over the past few years because no one wanted to own it. Now you have more people wanting to own it. And so I, I, I don't think that it's a, a all negative, but I certainly think the easy money has been made uh, as you look forward. Uh, and certainly the price of oil is still something that is going to be highly variable based upon uh, what is happening in the economy. I think right now it reflects the reality that we are moving more towards a recession. Um, certainly, I think the good news is we've had rolling recessions over the past year, just like we had a rolling recovery. And I think that helps take the starch out of any recession as we push forward, as does the state of the U U.S. consumer, uh, which is still in good shape. It's always easy money after the fact, isn't it, Tom? They, they never tell me ahead of time it's going to be easy money looking yeah. ahead for the year ahead. I, I think the best you can do, John, it's a really important insight. And, and, and the best you can do is try to gauge consensus. And it's not going against consensus when consensus is sort of kind of like. Yeah. It's when there's a massive consensus bet. And the question is, are we there now? Brent Shuddy of Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. Brent, you know I'm joking at the end. It's great to catch up, sir. Lorena Ricci joins us now, U.S. economist at T. Rowe Price. Lorena, thank you, thank you so much for being with us. My head is spinning over what the actual view of the American economy is, not the guesstimate out six months. Where are we right now? What's your working figure for some form of inflation-adjusted GDP Q4? That's a great question. Uh, everybody's confused because we're getting such mixed messages from the data. Is the labor market accelerating, even though the Fed has been hiking at such a fast pace? What's going on with growth and consumer spending? I would say in Q4 of this year, the U.S. economy is shaping up to expand at a healthy pace, probably 2 to 3% after being adjusted from inflation. And once again, what's pulling through the U.S. economy is the consumer, consumer spending data, both on services and goods for the beginning of Q4. We're pretty solid uh, for services as well as goods. So, yeah, we're in a good spot right now, but I think more deceleration is to come next year, unfortunately. The, the outlooks of the sell side are extraordinary this year. I've truly never seen the chaos, the cacophony is out there. What are you advising portfolio managers at T. Rowe Price? You guys invented on the buy side a fractious debate. This is, folks, I'm going to say 40, 
if not 50 years ago. Are they listening to you? And if they are, what's the line for them of how to be invested given this chaos? So how do we navigate these cross currents uh, that we're facing in 2023? I would say that the main thing is we expect interest rates to continue increasing. That means there's going to be yields in those fixed, um, port- fixed income portfolios that we uh, manage. However, as we look at the question of whether do we add risk or do we not add risk next year, the outlook for employment growth and consumption growth slowing in 2023 means that we're tentatively more more conservative when we're positioning ourselves with respect to risk. We were talking with Jim Bianco of Bianco Research a bit ago, and he was saying there still is this feeling of uh, transitory baked into people's expectations. It's just been pushed out that basically there'll be an immaculate disinflationary force that will come into play at the end of next year and allow the downturn to not be as severe as some people feared. Do you adhere to that kind of idea? Well, I think lots of questions for the second half of next year. First of all, I do think the Fed will get some help from the transitory question when it comes to uh, inflation. And we're going to start seeing that concretely in core goods inflation in the first half of next year. So I think that will be a factor helping the outlook for next year. However, when it comes to the question of a recession, I do notice as well that uh, lots of commentators are saying just because we don't see the imbalances right now, that this is, if we do have a recession, it's going to be a shallow one. I don't think I necessarily agree with that. Uh, I think once uh, recessionary processes take place and, and start to get into motion, things break in the economy that we don't necessarily anticipate. This is what happens in every recession. The other factor that I think weighs against the U.S. economy next year is that monetary policy has been tightening at a very, very fast pace compared to the last 20, 30 years. And the other one is that it's facing a very adverse global environment with growth in China slowing, uh, growth in Europe slowing, uh, contraction expected actually in Europe for the first half of this year. So the external environment is not that favorable. And then domestically, we have very tight monetary policy as well. Given the headwinds, why do you think the Fed is still going to get to 5%? Well, I think the headwinds are more uh, based for the second half of the year. And I think the Fed is so focused on realized inflation and the trend of three-month moving annualized average of core inflation that I think it will uh, need to continue hiking and delivering on those hikes that have been already priced in the market. Well, Sebastian Page emails in. I'm kidding. But for Sebastian Page, who's expert (laughs) on diversification, his wonderful book out on allocation in realities, folks, a colleague of Blurina's at T. Rowe Price. Blurina, one of the great things Lisa and I see is OECD views, grim. IMF views, grim. Is now, this is a loaded question. Is now the time to buy international and EM equities? That's simple. So this is the most anticipated recession in history. Is that what you're saying? So has all the bad news been priced in and is it time to dip into those more risky assets? I think we're still on the fence about that because of the question that we just discussed, that once we get into a recession, 
things can break unexpectedly. So I think we're still being a little bit more cautious in our portfolio allocations. And Sebastian will be able to tell you more. I I think this is a very fair answer. You know, we make jokes about people on the fence, but I think there's a huge body of people right now on the fence about go long EM, go long international, burnt once, burnt twice, burnt three times, four times, on and on and on. There's a lot of people on the fence. Especially when we hear about the Dutch GDP that Damien Sassar was talking about near record high. which is going to be a pervasive concern for a longer period of time. Blarina, when you look at what's going to happen next year, how much confidence do you have that the inflation is going to come down enough to support this expectation that we see over at HSBC, for example, that the 10 year is going to get down to two and a half percent because of that long term reversion back to what we used to know? I think there are some uh, tailwinds for inflation next year. So Chair Powell very helpfully split this into three pillars in his speech at Brookings last week. I think the first pillar of coal or goods is coming down significantly next year. We still have the effect of the dollar appreciation feeding into core goods with a lag. I think we have those rising inventory levels and slowing consumer demand on or consumer spending on goods and the improvement in supply chains, as well as transportation costs. I also look at private sector rental prices. They do feed into the uh, rent components of CPI with a lag. And I think they're telling me that around the second quarter of next year, we'll get significant progress there as well. But I think on average, even if inflation remains sticky in the other services components, on average is going to be trending down in a sustained basis. But we shouldn't extrapolate this into the Fed is going to uh, cut rates significantly immediately as we hit a a rough patch in the U.S. economy. Just real quick before we let you go, where have all the missing workers gone? This is something that Jay Powell has been talking about. Great question. We, this is a great question, and we did a deep dive across our fixed income division here to look into some of the factors that are keeping labor supply so depressed. The ones that really stood out to us is the interaction, first of all, of demographics and COVID. We knew that we had a demographic headwind to uh, labor supply, and then COVID made people retire even sooner than they would have otherwise. We also have a big, big hole in our labor supply from the lack of uh, migrant workers. Uh, Immigration visa processing collapsed in 2020 and 2021. We estimate about one and a half to two million workers are missing from this. And then we have other more structural long-term factors that are keeping uh, depressed Mm -hmm. the prime uh, age workers, uh, especially male workers. So lots of demographic, lots of structural factors uh, keeping labor supply low. Can monetary policy do anything about this? We don't think so. So they just have to bring down demand right. for labor. Very good. Blarina, uh, thank you so much. Blarina Arucci with us with T. Rowe Price. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's go to Washington now and figure out what happens, not in Atlanta after Georgia, but what happens in the white marble of Capitol Hill. Henrietta Trace joins Economic Policy Director with Veda Partners and serious uh, Capitol Hill cred. How does your world change now? What does a gridlock look like in 2023? Well, helpfully for the Democrats, they are locked and loaded in the Senate. They've got their 51 seats. They can uh, hold committee hearings. They can confirm whoever they need to. Um, It's going to smooth passage and honestly lift the fog of the last couple of weeks that has sort of settled over D.C. as everybody on the Democratic side and the Republican side wait for the outcome of last night's election. So that decisive win should clear us up on a lot of really niche issues, Um, things like whether the uh, Boeing jets will be certified, whether the Durbin Amendment on Visa and MasterCard will be approved, um, whether we can't get a pipeline permitting bill through the government funding package. There's hopefully going to be a lot of movement. So maybe the power changes for Joe Manchin, Cinema of Arizona, and that. On the Republican side, where McCarthy's not even sure he's going to be speaker, are there Joe Manchin-like people or a cadre within the House Republicans that can block what McCarthy and the Republican leadership want to do? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a four vote margin. And I would say that in order to be functional for the big tent that is the Republican Party over on the House side, Kevin McCarthy or whomever the next speaker is really needed 20 or even 25, 30 extra votes um, in the sort of middle of the road camp. Now you have a very fractured Republican conference in the House. I think it'll be really difficult and fascinating to watch the January 3rd election for speaker. And then again, um, as we get into call it July or even September at the latest, the debt ceiling fight. It could very well be that whoever the speaker is in the beginning half of the year is not the speaker in the back half of the year, uh, based on what they've got coming. We started this conversation talking about the iPhone and the TSMC uh, production outfit they're building over in Phoenix. We haven't talked about who's going to staff up some of the production that we're onshoring or nearshoring. How much are you seeing that continue to percolate in discussions in Washington with some real policy of how to bring more people back to the labor force and train them for some very highly specified roles. It's funny you mentioned that. I was just at a lunch with a, a guy that you guys speak with all the time, Torsten Slock at Apollo, and we were talking about exactly that. How are we going to get immigration to tick up so we can get everything from those high-tech jobs down to the farm workers in? Um, and there is a couple of separate bills that are pending right now. I do not have any kind of high odds that they'll be approved before the end of this year. I think the split in the House and Senate is just too severe and to get anything on immigration done, even helpful stuff. So to that end, I sort of look to Mexico. There's been a lot of talk um, from, for instance, 
instance, the Commerce Secretary, about how you can get a uh, really helpful supply chain build out on you know testing these products or packaging these products from Mexico, which would be near shoring or friend shoring. So I think to look look for a lot of that, um, a lot of optimism on that front. I don't know that there will be an immigration deal that brings in a whole host of workers that we're obviously going to need for those new production facilities in Arizona and elsewhere. Well, and these are the two issues that I've been looking at. The labor market, everyone's saying it's so tight in the United States, and then we're building out these factories and wondering, okay, well, who's going to come in and work for them? And the second point has been gasoline prices that have been coming down dramatically, and this has been one of the key mar- hallmarks of uh, President Biden's past couple of months in terms of the SPR releases. And we're seeing now crude prices almost down to that threshold where they said they would start buying and rebuilding their inventories. When do they pull the trigger? How much are you hearing conversations about that in D.C.? Um, I think there's a lot of mixed bag on the oil and gas front. Um, one of the areas that I've spent a bunch of time recently is the idea of that windfall profits tax out in California that we're monitoring very closely. I do think that there will be efforts to replenish the SPR, especially after we've, after we've depleted it for the last uh, however many months now. Um, so I do think that there is a lot of um, encouragement for that, and that would be done at the administration level, so hopefully you don't need Congress to weigh in on that. Um, but certainly you see a more proactive House and Senate uh, members writing a lot more letters uh, trying to advise the president, trying to advise the Fed on what they should do from here on out. And it's really mm-hmm. going to be up to the agencies, up to the executive branch, because Congress is not going to get anything done after, call it December 23rd, to be generous. Henrietta, are incumbents more entrenched as we move forward? I think incumbents are definitely entrenched. And what we have here is a unique situation where so many of the House Republicans are relative freshmen. They all come in since 2016 when President Trump first won. Last time I checked, I think it was like 75% of the House Republican conference is all new since 2016. So technically they're incumbents, but that's a pretty um, kooky set of incumbency environments or experiences that they've had. So I, I would expect for incumbents to sort of stick with what they know, caucus pretty hard, especially on the Democratic side where Hakeem Jeffries is going to try to, um, you know, figure out how his caucus works. Um, but the Republican conference is so fractured. Incumbency means sort of a different thing on that on that level. You're going to get uh, that, that freshman class of that since 2016 class that acts a lot differently than the old guys. Never boring down in Washington, Tom. She's great. She, she says She's the best value in the shortest time. Uh, you know, I think maybe Valier can compete, but it's just I learned so much there. Henry Schreister, that a fighter palmist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.